I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 8. This morning I am thankful once again for the opportunity to continue making our way through the gospel of Mark. I hope that you're eager to hear his word this morning, to hear from him as Jason prayed. I just want to remind you before we jump in about what we hold in our hands, about the words we hear, the words of God, right? Divinely inspired, without error, and preserved for us, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness so that you and so that I can be the men and women of God, complete for every good work. It's our privilege each week to take a new text and to consider what God would have us to see and to hear. This week, as I was preparing and meditating on the next part of Mark chapter 8, I came across a sentence written by a faithful pastor about 500 years ago, and I think it sets the stage for what we're going to see in God's word this morning. He said this, pride is so deeply rooted in the hearts of men that we often think wrong is done to us and we complain if God does not comply with everything we think is right. It's a powerful statement, isn't it? That we have pride so deep in us that if something is wrong to us in our perspective, we complain to God and suggest that he should do things our way. It's a powerful statement, and I think we're all guilty at times of being those kinds of people. We judge God and his actions based on what we perceive is best, based on what we determine is most loving and most just and most caring. It's really the height of arrogance, isn't it? We've sung together about our, our holy God, the one who created all things, who sustains all things, who holds all things together. And yet at times, we would suggest, if maybe only in our hearts, that our plan would be better. It can be subtle. For many of us, that's probably the way it expresses itself in subtleties in our hearts. But it can be overt. Maybe you've been in conversations where something like this was said. I believe in God, but I'm not sure about everything I read in Scripture. I believe in God, but I don't think, I don't think sin deserves eternal punishment. I believe in God, but the things the Bible says about gender and sexuality, outdated, right? Common objections. And what's happening is that we are tempted to fashion a God of our own design. To make a God who thinks and acts just like we do. Now, maybe the things I've mentioned above, maybe these aren't points of difficulty for you. Maybe these things are long, settled realities. I know for many of you, they are. But we're all guilty at different levels of suggesting that maybe we know better than God. In our minds, we form our own idea of how God should act. He's promised to provide for us, yes, but certainly he should provide for us in the ways that make sense to us. And yes, he's promised to give us what we need, but we should decide what that is. 
He's promised to do all things for his good and for our, for, excuse me, for our good and his glory. But we want to reserve the right to define what that looks like. You may not have had these exact thoughts. Maybe I'm just revealing my own struggles. But I think I've heard this from others. That at times, we think we know better than God. And here's the way it probably reveals itself. It probably doesn't come through in active thoughts like these. But it is revealed in us through our anxieties, through our fears. We decide maybe in our hearts subtly that God's plan isn't very good. So to go back to the quote, pride is so deeply rooted in our hearts that often we think wrong is done to us and complain even if God does not comply with everything we think to be right. We want a God who thinks like us and acts like us and reasons like us. Well, we're not the first to have this problem. In fact, as we turn to Mark chapter 8 this morning, we see that the disciples were tempted in the same way to try to fashion Jesus to function in the way that they thought was best. They believed he was Messiah. We saw that last week in the confession of Peter. And yet, what we're going to see this morning is that they aren't convinced that Jesus knows what it means to be the Messiah. They're not sure Jesus knows what his role is. So there's Peter who steps in to help, to suggest to Jesus what should happen next. Before we jump into the text, let me just remind you where we are. Remember up to this point, the the doubts of the disciples have been kind of on the main stage now for for several weeks, for several passages, back through chapters 6, 7, and 8. The disciples have struggled to see Jesus rightly, to understand him fully. But last week we came to a point where we saw a measure of growth, didn't we? Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're on the road from Bethsaida. They're headed north to uh, Caesarea Philippi, and they're having a conversation. And Jesus asks them those two questions that we considered last week. First, he asked them, who do people say that I am? And then the second question, the more important question, who do you say that I am? And Peter, most likely as the spokesman for the rest of the group, gives that incredible response, a true response. Peter says to Jesus and in the presence of his friends, you are the Christ. You're the long-awaited Messiah. You're the one who has come to redeem and to deliver the people of Israel. You're the one who will establish an eternal kingdom and who will reign forever. And yes, all that's wrapped up in that one phrase, in that one word. You're the Christ. It's a high point in the gospel market. It marks a transition where the disciples go from significant doubters to more disciples. And yet, what we recognize as we move on is that while Peter was right and he believed what he said, he did not yet fully understood what it meant. Does that make sense? Peter was right when he said Jesus is the Christ, and he believed what he said. 
but he didn't really know fully what it meant. It's not that he was wrong, but it's that his understanding was incomplete. Remember what they expected? They expected a Messiah who will come and defeat their enemies, who will establish his kingdom, and who will reign and rule and keep his people in perfect peace. And they're not wrong. Jesus has come as the king bringing his kingdom and who will rule and reign and establish perfect peace. But their timetable was a little off. And so things don't play out the way they expected. So as we come to our text this morning, after Peter's great declaration, you are the Christ, Jesus pulls them back and takes some time to start to explain to them what that actually means. So he tells them, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. And in light of this news, the disciples respond kind of the way I described as we started. We're all prone to thinking we know better than God. And what we see here is Peter has an objection. Peter tells Jesus, your plan isn't right. Jesus responds, and in the response of Christ, we get a reminder of how foolish it is for us to think that we are wiser than God. So that's where we're headed. Mark chapter 8, we're going to consider verses 31 to 33. A short passage, but so much for us to consider, and I think it's a going to set the stage well as we move into a week of thanksgiving. Hear the word, starting in verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. But Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Ask that God will add his blessing to the reading and preaching of his word this morning. As much as I love working through books of the Bible the way we do, just picking up the next text each week. And I'm convinced this is the best way for us to proceed as we take in the word of God together. But there are some weaknesses, there's some difficulties. And one of the biggest difficulties with this way of moving through the scriptures is that there's not always a good place to stop. Which means this morning, we're picking up right in the middle of a conversation. And because I'm not good at being concise, we're gonna stop again before the conversation ends. So we got to work hard. And so I want to I try to help us because here, here's, the, here's the potential problem. If we just parachute in and parachute out and look too, too small a portion, we may say things that the word's not saying. Right? We need to see the context. We need to see what's going on on either side. And so we'll work hard to do that together this morning. With that said, I already mentioned that last week we considered Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ. 
And then we heard in verse 30, Jesus give an unusual command. Peter has just declared for the first time up to this point in the gospel of Mark, no one else has said this up to this point in Mark. But Peter declares, you are the Christ. And then Jesus says, don't tell anyone. Why? See, Jesus knew that they didn't fully understand and the people they would be talking to didn't fully understand what it meant that he was the Christ. So they could declare Jesus is the Christ and people would hear Jesus is the king and he has come to rule and reign. Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone. And then he pulls them aside here. I think as they're still walking towards Philippi, he begins to teach them, to teach them what it means that he's the Christ. He wants them to know what to expect. Aren't you glad that God lets us know what to expect? The question is, will we trust him with what we hear? Jesus and his disciples are traveling. They're walking together, and he starts to explain it to them. And he tells them that the reason he's come and what it means for him to be the Christ is that he's going to suffer He's going to die. Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly, Mark says. Now for us, living when we do and knowing what we do, none of this is a surprise. This is one of those passages we can come to and we can breeze through verse 31 because, of course, Right? Jesus is the Christ, which means he suffers, which means he dies. Most of us can't think of Jesus and not think of the cross. In our minds, suffering and death is a settled reality. This is who Jesus is. This is why he came. But we have to fight to remember that the disciples and the Jews at this time had different expectations of Messiah. They expect a king and a kingdom. And to be clear, the Old Testament scriptures do point to that. The Old Testament scriptures do say that Christ, the Messiah, is coming as king. The Old Testament scriptures reveal to us that Christ, the Messiah, will establish an everlasting kingdom. But that's not all the Old Testament says about the Messiah. The Old Testament also points to a Messiah who must suffer and die. And you think, those things seem contradictory. And that's how it sounded to the disciples as well. But it's not two different plans. It goes together. See, the way Messiah established his kingdom is through suffering. This wasn't understood. And this is why Jesus is taking this time to explain to his friends what to expect. He does not want them to be unaware. So in verse 31, he says four things. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise. It's a really pregnant verse. Laying out so much, and I think because there's so much, we may miss one of the most important words. I would argue that one of the most important words in this passage is must. Jesus said to them, I must suffer many things. He's not saying these things might happen or that they could happen. He's saying they must happen. 
I must suffer many things. And it's not just a general rejection or a minor rejection. He's talking about a specific and serious rejection with dire consequences. And it's not even a rejection from those you would expect to reject him. It's not the Gentiles or the most wicked of the day, at least outwardly. The rejection comes from those who are the religious leaders. And we've already seen this happening throughout the Gospel of Mark, haven't we? That it's those who, who lead and those who are set apart as leaders in the, in the, in the temple and in the, among the people of God. These are the ones who are most leery of Christ. In fact, they despise him. This is not what people expected when they thought of Messiah. The disciples don't get it either. How could he be Messiah and not be seen by all and be accepted by the religious leaders of the day? So Christ is trying to help them. He explains to them that I must be rejected. And it's his rejection that will lead to his death. The Jewish leaders will hand him over to the Romans by whom he'll be crucified. Familiar realities to us, right? We are familiar with the suffering and the rejection of Christ, but this was shocking news for the disciples. Here's the man they've come to look to and expect will be their redeemer, their king. They will reign with him. And yet he's saying things that are so contrary to their perception. We have the advantage of hindsight. And we know why the scripture says that he must suffer. We know he must suffer because it's through his suffering that we have the forgiveness of sins. The Bible tells us we're all born this way. We're all born as enemies of God, separated by him from, from him by our sin. And we on our own cannot reconcile ourselves to him. We need a mediator. We need an advocate. We need a substitute. A price must be paid for our sins. And thankfully, God, from eternity past, had a plan for how he would save sinful men. His plan from before time began is that he would send his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus doesn't explain it here in our passage, but this is the first of three of these passion predictions in Mark where he reveals what's going to happen. And in the third one, in Mark chapter 10, he says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Why does Jesus say that he must suffer? Because this is why he came to ransom, to free us from our sins, to free Peter from his sins. I must suffer because it's through my suffering that you will be saved. We know this, don't we? And we even see it in the Old Testament. We go back to the great prophet of Isaiah and we, we love Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that 
that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have wandered, every one of us, in our own way. But God laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is why he said, I must suffer. I must bear your sins. And we can look at Isaiah 53 and other passages in the Old Testament, and it seems clear to us. God sent his son for us. And he must suffer and he must die. Blood must be shed because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But in God's plan, and note this, in God's plan, people didn't recognize him. In God's plan, people had a very narrow view of what Messiah will be. Messiah will be king. Messiah will be the one who will sit on the throne of David forever. And he is. But he's also the suffering servant. And the idea of suffering servant and victorious Messiah are not two separate things. Jesus is trying to help his disciples see that these are actually part of the same plan. The way the Messiah becomes victorious is through suffering, death, and resurrection. This is the means. And while often Jesus had spoken parables and in metaphors and in pictures, Mark tells us here, now he speaks plainly. He wants his disciples to hear. He wants them to not miss what he's saying. I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. We hear this as good news, don't we? This is the heart of the gospel. This is the reason we can gather. This is the reason we can sing. This is the reason we can have hope and joy in a future. Praise be to God that he suffered and died. Praise be to God for the cross. By his wounds we are healed. But this is, this is so foreign to the disciples. It makes no sense to them. There is nothing in their paradigm that allows for a suffering Messiah. And someone must stand up and say something, right? Peter, you go. I think Peter goes as a spokesman often. Yes, he's bold, but he's also the leader of the group. So Peter goes and he stands up to Jesus. Verse 32. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. There's lots of times in the Gospels when we shake our heads at Peter. <laughs> this is the one where I, I wouldn't even be able to look at him. You know, you're one of the disciples thinking, man, what's he doing? But someone's got to say it, right? Because Jesus is saying things that don't make sense. Peter stands up and we're told he rebukes him. It's the same word that we see in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus rebukes the demons and commands them to listen and obey. It's a strong word. Peter's assertive. He stands up to Jesus insisting that Jesus stop talking about suffering and dying. We're, we're not told the content of the rebuke here. We, we are given more in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. It says, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Do you hear the difference? Jesus said, I must suffer. 
Peter says, no, no, this will never happen to you. We're all prone to thinking we know better than God. Peter's completely dismissing the idea of suffering, insisting this must never happen. And I wonder if perhaps Peter's thinking, Jesus, I want to reassure you this will never happen because I will stand in the gap. If anyone comes after you, I will be there. Perhaps Peter's willing to stand up and say, we've got your back. You will never suffer. We're here for you. That's speculation. We don't know exactly what Peter's thinking, but we do know that Peter is not on board with the plan of suffering. He believes in a Messiah who will rule and reign, not in a Messiah that will suffer and die. For Jesus to suggest otherwise is foolish. Peter stands up to Jesus, and while to some in the crowd it may have seemed noble, may have been well-intentioned, we can't miss the fact that in this moment, Peter believes he knows more than the Lord. Instead of humbly submitting to the teaching of Christ, he becomes proud and pushes back against what he's heard. Instead of recognizing his position as a servant of Christ, he puts himself in a place of authority. Instead of asking questions in humility, he becomes assertive and proud, insisting that he knows better. And while we may be quick to throw Peter under the bus, we should also remember our own doubts and questions. And the, old, the times when we go to God's word and we are quick to make excuses. And go back to where we started this morning. We've probably all stood where Peter stands, positioning ourselves at least in our hearts against God because we don't understand what he's doing. Our sin nature, when things aren't going the way we thought, is to think that we know better, to think that we are smarter, to think that we know what's supposed to happen more than God does. You wouldn't say it out loud. You're a good Christian. But our actions betray us as we're overcome by fear and overcome by worry, filled with complaint. Not only do we forget our place, we forget that our perspective is so limited. We put our own desires and our own wisdom up against God and his plan. We forget that the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than you. Think about what Jesus is saying. I'm coming to suffer and to die. It's the ultimate example of how the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Isn't that what we heard in the passage Jason read earlier for us? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Maybe this will be a chapter that you could take and just read this afternoon in light of Mark chapter 8. Read all of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll read just a portion starting in verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Oh, but to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. The Jews demanded signs, the Greeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It was a stumbling block to the Jews. We see that in our text, don't we? It was folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ is the wisdom of God. 
It didn't make sense to the disciples that Jesus would suffer. But it's because they didn't understand what his suffering would accomplish. Here's Jesus, who through his suffering and through his death and through his resurrection is going to purchase forgiveness. Through his blood, he's going to reconcile sinful men to God. And yet Peter thinks he knows better. He rebukes Jesus. This will never happen. Aren't you glad that Peter couldn't win that argument? It's an incredible display of pride and of Peter's lack of trust. And I would argue that you and I often stand in the same place, insisting that we know better than God and blind to what his plan is going to accomplish. He is working today for your salvation. Through what he has given you today in this job, in this situation, in 2020, he is working all things together for your salvation. The question is, will you trust him or will you stand up and rebuke him to his face and say, this is not how it should be? Do we trust him? Peter rebukes Christ and Jesus rebukes him back. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. We saw earlier, Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him in private. Jesus does not extend the same courtesy to Peter. We're told he, he turns and he sees all the disciples they're all within view. And I, I think the reason for this is because, once again, Peter's the spokesman. He's not the only one guilty here. I think Jesus directs his rebuke to Peter, but it's really meant for all of them. Get behind me, Satan. If you want to do some reading, grab any commentary on Mark chapter 8. You'll have plenty of time to read Lots of discussion around what this means, what's being said here. And some have suggested that this is indicating that Peter was actually possessed or controlled by the devil. I'm not convinced that's the case. I think Jesus is using strong language to point out a serious offense. Not only are the disciples questioning Jesus, but they are, in a sense, suggesting that he abandoned the plan of salvation. This is the kind of thing the devil would do. To suggest that Jesus should avoid suffering and walk away from the very means through which men will be saved. Peter is doing something very similar to what Satan desires. In fact, we see something similar back at the temptation of Christ. Remember when Satan comes to Jesus in the wilderness? What was Satan encouraging Jesus to do? Jesus was hungry. Satan encourages him to avoid suffering. If you're hungry, turn these stones into bread. You came to establish a kingdom? Bow to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. You don't have to walk this road. There's an easier way. Satan knew what he was doing. 
he was tempting Jesus to sin and to abandon the plan of salvation. And while Peter may not have fully understood what he was doing, he's doing something very similar. Suggesting that Jesus should avoid suffering, suggesting that Jesus should fight and stand up rather than be killed. Whether he knew it or not, Peter was suggesting that Jesus should abandon the very reason he came. In that way, it's a satanic suggestion. Full of pride for which the devil is known. Peter thought he knew better than Christ. And this is why Jesus turns rebuke for rebuke. He starts with a shocking command, get behind me, Satan. And then he says this, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but rather on the things of men. If you want something to memorize this week, start here. I think so many of us so often are tempted to look only horizontally and never vertically. Setting our minds only on the things that we can see and not on the things that are unseen. Setting our mind on the things of men rather than the things of God. It's a strong warning and admonition and one that we should take to heart. Because while we might not stand face to face with Christ, often we do so in our hearts. We trust ourselves and our own wisdom more than the wisdom of God. We decide we know better than the one who made us. And we determine that the best course of action is always the road of least resistance, even if the harder road is the road that God has designed for his purposes. We do what's right in our own eyes. And I just want to remind you that in every situation you face this week, from the smallest to the greatest, there will always be two decisions. You can either, either see things the way God sees them and obey him, or you can see things through your own lens and obey the flesh. These two options always exist from the time we wake up to the time we go to bed. Will we please God or will we please ourselves? R.C. Sproul commented on this verse and said, this is the great divide between godliness and godlessness. The godly person is deeply concerned about the things of God. But the godless person has no concern for the things of God. Instead, he's preoccupied with the world around him. I hope you desire to be among the godly. But we probably all must confess how often we live like the godless. Setting our eyes on the things we see and trusting in the things that we can control. So we have to push back, don't we? We need to ask ourselves hard questions. What's ruling our hearts? What are we desiring that we feel like we can't let go of? What are we craving that we think we must have? Who or what is receiving our worship? These are the kind of questions that, that push us to decipher whether or not we're setting our minds on the things of God. What are we loving the most? What are we serving the most? What are we worshiping the most? What do I crave so much that I can't let go? Are we seeking to please God? Are we seeking to please ourselves? 
we see in the text that Peter had strongly held beliefs. He rightly believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but it was an incomplete understanding. And because he didn't understand what was right and true, it led him to stand for things that were untrue. I think it's a reminder of the need to continue to understand what God says. So the things we stand for are the things that are right and true. We talked about last week that the Christian life is a journey. So we said last week is one of our implications that Peter's confession of Christ was not the end of his faith, but the beginning of it. I think it's very clear this morning that Peter had a long ways to go. Perhaps you have come to that place where you have confessed Jesus is the Christ and you are his. Man, I'm so glad for that. But can I remind you that your confession of Christ is not the end of your journey of faith, but the beginning? It didn't take long for Peter to show his immaturity. But I also think it's important to consider that Jesus' rebuke was not Jesus' effort to write off Peter forever. No, Jesus issued a strong rebuke, I believe, out of love. If he wanted to send Peter away, he could have done that. He doesn't. He warns him of his error, but he does so as a means of loving discipline. And isn't the way, this the way God treats us? We're, we read of it in Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't be weary when reproved by him. Think about how comforting this might have been for Peter that day <laughs> if he heard these words. Don't be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines those whom he loves and he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline is painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I think it's fun to think of where moments like this in the life of Peter led him. He received the rebuke of Christ and went on to be a great spokesman on behalf of his Lord. Maybe you're feeling the discipline of God even this morning, knowing that you have positioned yourself against him. If that's the case, I'm glad for the rebuke of God in your life, and I hope that you respond to it well. See, we can decide to double down in our pride and bow up our chest to God, or we can humbly submit to what he's trying to teach us. With that said, let me bring us back to the main point of our text, and then we're going to close. I spent a lot of time talking about the rebuke of Peter and the rebuke of Christ, and that's appropriate. But as we consider what comes before this passage and what comes after it, I think the big idea, the, the main thing that we should get if we take nothing else away is this. We serve a suffering Savior, one who came to die for us. And what Jesus is trying to help his disciples recognize is that he did not come first to reign, but first to die. 
because his death was the means to his throne. But as we continue into next week, what we're going to see is that Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples that just as he has suffered, those who follow him must suffer too. See, there's more to this plan that Peter did not expect. Not only must Jesus suffer, not only must Jesus suffer, but all who follow him will suffer as well. So we'll pick up here next week, but let me go ahead and read it for you, starting in verse 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? For what can man give in return for his soul? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. I wonder if, how this sounded to Peter in that moment after rebuking Christ. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. We'll unpack that next week. See how it all fits together. That Jesus came to suffer and die for our salvation, and now as those who have chosen to follow him, we too must lay down our lives. Add it all up, and here's the conclusion for us this morning. God's ways are different than our ways. And God values things that we don't value. But the Christian life is a journey of reorienting ourselves to think the way that God thinks and to see the world the way God sees the world and to understand his plan. Our propensity is to avoid suffering. Jesus says, follow me and trust me. To go back to the quote we read earlier, may we not be the kind of people who are so proud that when we think wrong is done to us, we complain and insist that God should comply with everything we think is right. Instead, let us walk in humility, trusting God and his plan, trusting that his ways are best, trusting that he today and this week it's fulfilling the plan that will lead to our eternal joy. Therefore, brothers, sisters, friends, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory.